So it is my arduous duty, really arduous, to introduce this evening two speakers who actually need no introduction, um, at least not to 95% of this audience. But for the benefit of the 5%, um, I will introduce them um, in the order that they're going to speak, I believe. Um, Richard Llewellyn is the former Bishop of Dover, um, from which position he then became Bishop in Lambeth. After his retirement and his return to Canterbury, he devoted, and still does devote, much of his time and energy to supporting the justice for Palestinian cause. But recently, he's also turned his attention to the pressing subject of climate change, and it's on that tonight that he's going to lead us. Richard was convener of this lecture series between 2012 and 2017, and he took over from our second speaker, John Butler, another person with very varied interests and talents. After an academic career at Kent, he retired as Emeritus Professor of Health Services Studies, but switched dramatically in 1995 with the publication of his book, The Quest for Beckett's Bones, followed some years later by the biography The Red Dean of Canterbury, and now the recently published The Relics of Thomas Beckett, a true life mystery. So we have two very great, great minds and two very lovely people, and they are very keen debaters of all things political and theological. So tonight we have an Anglican and a Methodist together to guide us through this great burning question, literally burning in some parts of the world. Climate change, is it a done deal and where is God in all this? And I'll hand over to Richard, who is going to start us off. Well, good evening to you all, and thank you for coming. It is worse, much worse than you think. With these disturbing words, David Wallace Wells begins his, what I think is an excellent book on global warming, which he entitled The Uninhabitable Earth. David Wallace Wells is not a scientist. He is deputy editor of the New York Magazine <clears throat> and a contributor to The Guardian. It is as a journalist that he came to the conclusion that there were a number of misapprehensions among the ordinary public about this subject of climate change, global warming. Caused by a combination of the understandable caution in some of the earlier scientific conclusions and predictions and a resistance among some editors of newspapers and magazines to publish articles about global warming that would come across to their readership as, in their view, unnecessarily alarmist. Hence his own book, published last September, The Uninhabitable Earth, a book really that is worth reading and can be got out of the library. 
In that book, he says that there are three, in his view, three widespread misunderstandings. I was going to have a timer to tell me when to shut up. So let me just press it now, and that'll cheer me up. <clears throat> he says that there are three widespread misunderstandings about climate change. The speed of change, the scope of change, and the severity of the threat. First, the speed of change. And much of what follows in my talk will be familiar to a great deal of you, but it's a good chance just to pull certain strands together to get perhaps what's an overall picture. <clears throat> the speed of change. About 85% of the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has been placed there by us since the Second World War. Given the fact that industrialization started in Britain in the 18th century and gradually spread to most of our world, this does show an alarming increase of greenhouse gas simply within our own generation. And as you know, most of the world's industries and associated activities are still energized by fossil fuels, one of the chief culprits. We are, as a planet, still burning more fossil fuels each year, though we're slightly burning less coal, but not gas and oil. So a very significant increase in climate warming has been brought about within the period of a single lifetime, the lifetime of many of us here. So the speed of change on a graph is just shooting up all the time. Next, the scope of change. Wallace Wells suggests that in most people's minds, climate change is largely about the melting of ice at the poles of our planet and therefore the gradual increase in sea levels that this will cause. So, climate change has been seen principally as a coastal problem. On that basis, if you live well inland, you'll be protected. Even, of course, though some of us in some parts of the world will eventually have to relocate because of climate change. The truth, he says, is very different. There is no one, literally no one, who will not begin to experience the negative effects of climate change very soon if they have not done so already. The scope of climate change is all-embracing because the increasing heat of our planet introduces this added factor to every aspect of life on this earth. And Wallace Wells lists 12 areas, and in his book goes into quite a lot of detail about each one of them. You'll be relieved to know that I'm only mentioning some of these areas and that I'm making only short explanations regarding them. The first is what he describes as heat death. Our body temperature is around 37 degrees Celsius, 37 degrees centigrade. 
and we are constantly generating heat all the time. So we have to live in an environment that cools us, otherwise we will simply not survive. Rather like the fact that the engine of a car without its cooling radiator would soon blow up. If we continue to let things slide, the Independent Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, suggests that four degrees centigrade of warming is likely by the end of the century. That would deliver what today seems like unthinkable impacts. Wildfires, wildfires of huge intensity, consuming forests and communities, hundreds of drowned cities, and many other cities now home to millions of people across India and the Middle East, becoming so hot that stepping outside in the summer would be a lethal risk. In fact, he says, all this could happen much sooner with as little as two degrees of warming. You do not need to consider, he says, worst-case scenarios, but to be somewhat alarmed. Then there is hunger. Over half of our nutrition comes from crops of one kind or another. The tropics are already excessively hot to grow grain efficiently. The places where grain is growing today at the moment are at a reasonably ideal growing temperature. But even a little warming will reduce this efficiency. And at four degrees of warming, corn yield in the United States, the world's largest producer of maize, will drop by almost half. At the same time, this planet is having to feed more and more people. Drowning. That the oceans will become a killer is a given. Barring a radical reduction of emissions, we could see at least four feet of sea level rise and possibly eight feet of sea level rise by the end of this century, only 80 years away. A radical reduction of our carbon emissions, of the order restricting climate change to what the IPC recommends, two degrees, could still produce as much as six feet of rise in our oceans by the end of this century. In another book I've read, this time by a man called Jeff Goodell, called The Water Will Come, he runs through a few of the places that will be transformed into what he describes as underwater relics. Any beach that you and I have ever visited, the Kennedy Space Center, the United States' largest naval base located in Norfolk, Virginia, the entire nations of the Maldives and the Marshall Islands, most of Bangladesh, all of Miami Beach and much of the South Florida Paradise Coast, St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, the White House itself, and the list goes on. And this massive drowning will, of course, produce millions of refugees. And you've already seen how good 
we are with coping with the refugees just from the war, uh, a recent war in Syria and Iraq. What else is coming, he says. Significantly more flame, both in its spread and in its regularity, devastating considerably more land. In the United States in the last 40 years, the season of the year when wildfires are most likely to break out is now two and a half months longer than it used to be. And as we know, rapidly spreading fires are not simply an American problem. Australia is grappling with, grappling with massive bushfires, fueled by record-breaking temperatures and months and months of severe doubt. Well, I said doubt, I meant drought, but both apply. <laughs> In the worst affected state, New South Wales, fires have burned about 10 million acres, destroyed about a thousand houses. And across the country, scores of people have died, including some volunteer firefighters. And an area bigger than Scotland has been devastated. And some, you know, in such a way that it may not easily recover. Because, of course, if the drought and heat goes on, uh, the climate for recovery is just not there. Yes, of course, Australia is used to its annual bushfires. But it is the sheer intensity and extensity, and there is a word, extensity, I looked it up to check up. It is the sheer intensity and extensity uh, of the present blaze that indicates that climate change is an added factor. And even the Prime Minister of Australia is reluctantly saying that, yes, this might be so. Some people take a very long time. If you watched any of David Attenborough's remarkable programs, which I'm sure you have on our planet, you will know that our oceans, which represent 70% of the surface of the world, are also warming and becoming more acidic. Let us think about ocean warming first. Water, as I'm sure you know, heats up more quickly than land, and there is a lot of water around on this planet. The warmer the water, the less oxygen it can hold, and most creatures who live in water rely on oxygen to survive as much as we do, breathing it through their gills, etc. The warmer water is also killing off our coral reefs, not only are they extraordinarily beautiful, but they are a breeding ground for countless marine species at the bottom of the feeding chain. So loss of coral reefs is little short of disastrous. The warmer the water, the more it expands, and there is only one place where the extra volume of water can go onto our land. they become more acidic too. Water dissolves carbon to form an acid called carbonic acid. Our oceans absorb a huge amount of the carbon that we produce, which would otherwise, of course, 
have increased the greenhouse effect in our atmosphere if, they hadn't, uh, if this carbon dioxide hadn't been absorbed by the oceans and had gone up into uh, the atmosphere above us. Just one statistic. If the same amount of planetary heat that has been absorbed by the oceans in the last 70 years had instead gone into the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide, our planet would have seen a warming not just of 2 degrees, nor even of 22 degrees, but an astounding 36 degrees. I mean, that is a mind-boggling figure. Scientists are telling us that 4 degrees of global warming would be disastrous. What would 36 degrees have been like? But fortunately, our oceans have saved us. But saved us at a great deal of cost to themselves. Because as carbon dissolves in our water, our oceans become more acid. And the more acid they become, the less hospitable are our oceans to many of the creatures that live with them. And yet, you know, the creatures of our oceans are vital to our own well-being. The oceans feed us. Globally, seafood accounts for nearly a fifth of all animal protein in the human diet. Next point. Already in our own day, millions of our fellow human beings suffer from a shortage of clean, fresh water already. Not only does increased industrialization and increased intensive farming lead to water shortages, so does a warming planet. Increased evaporation reduces the size of reservoirs and freshwater lakes and inland oceans. Some lakes and inland seas have already disappeared and more will do so. Water that we can use to drink and wash and cook will be in increasingly short supply for more and more of us. Conflict. Conflict between communities and societies is likely to increase as resources for human habitation and food and water become scarcer and as migrations increase. Donald Trump may dismiss climate change, but his own military, the Pentagon, is very exercised about it, precisely because of the risk it poses of increased warfare, increased conflict. There you have it, not all the examples, but many of them, and it, to illustrate that climate warming is all-embracing. No one of us will be spared. But of course, climate, dis, uh, climate distress will not be shared out equally or justly. Many communities that have contributed least to climate change are among the most vulnerable and have fewer resource effect. So there is a justice issue as well. And lastly, there is the severity of the change. Climate warming has already reached a stage that means that what the IPCC, Independent Panel of Climate uh, Change, is asking of us will not put this planet back to where it was before all this began. For the last 11,000 years or so, 
Since the last major ice age, we've been living on a more or less steady state planet. With the temperature rise that we already significantly contributed to in the last generation or so, we have sufficiently altered the climate on this planet to create what can be legitimately described as a more hostile environment. If we stopped burning all fossil fuels tomorrow, there is more than enough carbon dioxide in our atmosphere to keep the planet overheated compared to what it has been for many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. If I've illustrated the severity of the situation fa facing us, it's only because all, this, all the research I've done has been a real eye-opener to me, and I want it to be a real eye-opener to you as well. But David Wallace Wells states very clearly that we human beings who've brought about this situation, first of all, largely unknowingly, and latterly with growing awareness of the harm that we have been doing, also have the ability to halt it and even possibly reverse it. So in answer to the question, is climate change a done deal? The short answer is, it doesn't have to be a done deal. What is lacking is not the technology, nor the resources to put the technology to good use, but the corporate will. Yes, we will have to change our lifestyles significantly, and that will be inconvenient and uncomfortable, but not impossible. And every change of personal lifestyle, however small, is important because it is a seal of our own commitment to this most important cause and can be an example to others as well. So first, we need to convince ourselves that the necessary changes will be well worthwhile for the sake of our children and grandchildren and their grandchildren. Then we will need to convince others. And then together, the most difficult task of all, we need to convince our leaders, national and international, that we are ready to face the challenges that confront us all. It's taken me about 20 minutes to say to you what I have wanted to say. What I'd like to you to do now is to listen to a couple of other people who can say it all in less than four minutes and say it very well indeed. This is not a drill. My name is Greta Thunberg. We are living in the beginning of a mass extinction. Our climate is breaking down. Children like me are giving up their education to protest. But we can still fix this. You can still fix this. To survive, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. But this alone will not be enough. Lots of solutions are talked about. But what about a solution that is right in front of us? I'll let my friend George explain. There is a magic machine that sucks carbon out of the air, costs very little, and builds itself. It's called a tree. A tree is an example of a natural climate solution. Mangroves, peat bogs, jungles, marshes, seabeds, kelp forests, swamps, coral reefs, they take carbon out of the air and lock it away. Nature is a tool we can use 
to repair our broken climate. These natural climate solutions could make a massive difference. Pretty cool, right? But only if we also leave fossil fuels in the ground. Here's the crazy part. Right now, we are ignoring them. We spend 1,000 times more on global fossil fuel subsidies than on natural-based solutions. Natural climate solutions get just 2% of all the money used on tackling climate breakdown. This is your money. It is your taxes and your savings. Even more crazy, right now, when we need nature the most, we're destroying it faster than ever. Up to 200 species are going extinct every single day. Much of the Arctic ice is gone. Most of our wild animals have gone. Much of our soil has gone. So what should we do? What should you do? It's simple. We need to protect, restore and fund. Protect. Tropical forests are being cut down at the rate of 30 football pitches a minute. Where nature is doing something vital, we must protect it. Restore. Much of our planet has been damaged. But nature can regenerate. And we can help ecosystems bounce back. Fund. We need to stop funding things that destroy nature and pay for things that help it. It is that simple. Protect, restore, fund. This can happen everywhere. Many people have already begun using natural climate solutions. We need to do it on a massive scale. You can be part of this. Vote for people who defend nature. Share this video. Talk about this. All around the world, there are amazing movements fighting for nature. Join them. Everything counts. What you do counts. As a Christian, I really do believe that there is no folly, no pickle that we get ourselves into that is beyond redemption. For we believe in a God of infinite resources, infinite surprises, and infinite forgiveness. So there is this other question in the title of this evening's presentation. Where is God in all this? And as you've already been told, John Butler is going to introduce this second question. So John, over to you. Where is God in all this? <clears throat> you may very well think it perverse, even reckless, for an Anglican bishop to delegate responsibility for talking about God to a Methodist layman. But that is the position I find myself in this evening. I'm still not sure why I agreed to do it. But it may be relevant that the arrangement was concocted two months ago over lunch in a Lebanese restaurant while Richard was drinking a large glass of water and I was drinking a large glass of red wine. A curious inversion for an Anglican and a Methodist, you might think. But that's ecumenism for you. 
Anyway, here I stand. And what I have to say over the next 20 minutes reflects nothing other than my own personal understanding of God based upon a lifetime of trying with very little success to fathom the compelling mystery of that which we call God. I do want to emphasize that I am speaking only for myself, not for Richard and certainly not for Christianity in general. We each have our own particular understanding of who or what God is. And if yours is a different understanding to mine, well, you will have your chance to sound forth in a moment when we engage in the fellowship of controversy. So the good bishop has asked me to reflect upon where God is in the climate crisis that is now beginning seriously to endanger our beautiful planet. And I will do that. But I want to start in a rather different place with the consequences of the choices we each make as individuals. I believe that as human beings we have been created with a good deal of freedom to choose the ways in which we are going to live our lives. In the time-hallowed debate between free will and determinism, I am on the side of free will. Though I do recognize, of course, that the particular and unique circumstances of each person's life will place limits on the extent to which that freedom can be exercised. But as a matter of principle, I believe in free will. If God has indeed created us, then he has done so in a way that allows us a good deal of freedom to choose the kind of people we want to be. That is the central message from the story of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were free to choose whether or not to do that which they had been forbidden to do. They were not inert lumps of clay in the hands of their creator, to use Paul's metaphor in Romans 9, and nor am I. To put it in the language of post-Reformation Christianity, I am an Arminian and not a Calvinist. That is to say, I do not believe in a God who has pre-programmed human beings for lives either of moral rectitude or moral chaos. And I do not believe that we are predestined either for salvation in heaven or damnation in hell. Rather, I believe that it is of the very essence of my nature as a human being that I am free to make my own moral choices, albeit within the particular and inescapable constraints 
that my life places upon me. But note the necessary implication of this. Choices have consequences. And if I am free to make my own moral choices, then it follows that I am also responsible for the moral consequences that flow from them. I can't blame anyone but myself if the decisions that I make turn out to be, to be harmful to myself or to others. Let me be quite clear about this. The counterpart of having freedoms is that we also have responsibilities. Though I would immediately want to add that this is not something that people wish to hear these days. For ours is an age in which it is always someone else's fault, never our own. Don't blame me. It's my upbringing. It's my genes. I'm only doing my job. In truth, of course, there's nothing new about this. It was my wife who led me astray, said Adam. No, 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 replied Eve. It was all the fault of the snake. And the snake, as wags throughout the ages have reminded us, didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> but, and this is the second step in my argument, although in principle we have the freedom to do both good and bad things, we are not, so to speak, frail creatures cast adrift on the terrifying oceans of life with no navigational aids to guide us through the storms that will inevitably beset us. Quite the reverse. Christianity and the other great world faiths and the accumulated wisdom of secular philosophers down the ages have given us very clear and surprisingly consensual precepts, guidelines, commandments, call them what you will, about the best ways of living in the fullness of our humanity. Ways that will enhance and beautify and dignify our own lives and the lives of those we encounter in the everyday. Adam and Eve had the freedom to make their own choices, certainly. But in doing so, they knew how they were supposed to behave. And so do we. We too know how we are supposed to behave if we are to flourish as human beings. We know what righteousness looks like even when we are doing our best to avoid it and blaming others in the process. The language may differ from one religious or secular tradition to another, but the focus is the same. What does the Lord require of us but to act justly, to love loyalty, and to walk humbly with our God? Love is better than hatred. Generosity is better than greed. Truth is better than deceit. Peace is better than war. 
Humility is better than pride. Compassion is better than hard-heartedness. Forgiveness is better than revenge. There's nothing complicated about it. Simples, as Sergei would say. That's the second stage in my argument before I try to scale it up to the level of humanity as a whole. That we not only have the freedom to make our own moral choices, we also have no shortage of precepts or guidelines or commandments from the age-old wisdoms of both religious and secular experience as to how we should exercise that freedom for our own and other people's good. And here's the third step. I put it first as a question. What if, in spite of the precepts or guidelines or commandments that we know so well, we still persist in making wrong choices? What if, even though we know that we are not behaving well, we still put the love of self above the love of neighbor, still put greed above generosity, still put deceit above the truth? What then? Will the point eventually be reached when God will intervene to save us from ourselves? Will God finally say, you've abused your freedom of choice for too long and you're doing a great deal of damage to yourself and to others, and so I, God, am going to act. I am going to enter into your life to ensure that in future you will behave in ways that are far more conducive to your own well-being and the well-being of others. Is this how things work? Well, no. Not in my playbook, at least. For as I have already tried to explain, I do not believe that this is how God treats us. Having given us the freedom to make our own moral choices, and having given us abundant guidelines about how we should exercise that freedom, God can do no other than to allow us to live with the consequences of those choices. This was the painful lesson that Adam and Eve had to learn in pretty short order. That their creator was not a God who would rescue them from their folly if they willfully chose to ignore his purposes for them. And so it is for us too. But let's be under no illusion about this. It is not a matter of God abandoning us if he declines to rescue us from the folly of our own decisions, but of us abandoning God by rejecting the precepts that he has set before us. We may say that God wants us to flourish, he wills us to flourish. But I do not believe that it is any part of his design for us that he will ride roughshod over our free will by forcing us back into the paths of righteousness when we stray too far from them. He is, I believe, a God 
who respects our freedom to make bad choices as well as good ones, and a God who then allows us to live with the consequences. But he is also a God who welcomes us back with words of forgiveness when we recognize and repent our folly. In my book, he is a God who invites but does not coerce. But now comes the difficult bit. For I want to suggest that if, if that is how God relates to us as individuals, then we can perhaps scale up the argument and say that it is also how he relates to us when we are acting in collective ways. Let me try to run through the three steps. First, I suggest that just as we have the freedom to make our own choices as individuals, so also there is a real sense in which the representative groups around which our lives revolve, those of our local communities and our nation states, also have the freedom to make the decisions and choices that they wish. Governments are not predestined or pre-programmed to behave in particular ways. Nation states can, to start focusing down on climate change, can decide through their legitimate machineries of government whether or not to adopt the target set by the Paris Agreement. And whatever they decide, they will do. And just as we bear responsibility for the consequences of the choices we make as individuals, so it is with communities and nation states. They too bear responsibility for the choices they make on behalf of their people, even when they are acting in perfectly legal ways. So if, say, a nation state acting legally within its constitution withdraws from the Paris Agreement, then that state becomes responsible for any negative consequences that its people may experience. At a corporate as well as an individual level, there is the freedom to make either good or bad decisions. And there is also the corollary of being responsible for the consequences of those decisions. But, and this is the second step in my argument, just as individuals have access to a wealth of precepts, guidelines, commandments, call them what you will, to help them in making good decisions, so too communities and nation states have no shortage of information to guide them in distinguishing between choices that are likely to produce a good outcome for their people and those that are likely to prove harmful. And in the specific context of climate change, this information will obviously derive mainly from science. But I do believe that we can also discern very clear signposts in the religious wisdom of the ages. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Bible can double up as a handbook on the management of climate change. 
It has nothing to say about that specifically. But religion does have a great deal to say about the right attitudes we should have towards the sanctity of life in all its forms. Attitudes of reverence, nurture, non-exploitation, respect for life. I have no problem in saying as a religious imperative that the sacred duty of care we owe to each other extends also to a sacred duty of care we owe to the whole of nature. And now comes the tricky third step. And the question, what if? What if, in spite of all that we already know, and all that we are likely to discover in the future, we still persist through the actions that the representatives of our communities and our nation states take on our behalf in going down the road that is likely to cause catastrophic or even terminal harm to our planet. What then? Will God intervene when we stand on the threshold of oblivion to stop that happening? If I have prepared the groundwork carefully, you won't be surprised by my answer. No, he won't. Not in my playbook, at least. Just as God does not intervene to force us to make good choices in our personal lives, so he does not intervene in the political processes of communities and nation states to ensure that the choices that they make will lead to the flourishing of their people and the planet. I do not believe in a God who will shield communities and states from the consequences of bad decision-making. However much we may be beseech him to do so in our prayers. To put it as bluntly as I can, I do not believe in a God who will intervene dramatically at the last moment to save our planet, if in our collective folly, our representatives in the relevant political arenas of the world continue to make choices that might lead to the death of the planet. Why should he? He can't be part of any cosmic plan, for we know that in the very long run, our planet will die when the sun eventually runs out of the hydrogen that fuels it. So it's not a question of whether life on Earth will ever become extinct, but when. Unless, of course, you happen to believe that God will miraculously top up the sun's supply of hydrogen just before the apocalypse occurs, which I don't. I do not believe that there is any necessary reason <clears throat> why life on earth should continue forever. And as far as I can discern, there is no particular reason why God should ensure that it does. Even if he could. Which I doubt. Don't forget that roughly as many species have already disappeared as are currently living on the planet, 
including quite a number of hominid species. So finally, to the question I've been asked to consider, where is God in the crisis that seems about to engulf us and that threatens to extinguish large swathes of life on Earth long before the sun runs out of hydrogen? Having tried very carefully to prepare the ground, my answer is quite simple. God is weeping, metaphorically of course, over the folly of our carelessness towards our planet and the abundance of life that it contains. And he's urging us to be more tender and caring of the creative world. But he is not going to save us from our collect from our, our from our collective suicidal obsessions if in spite of all that we know we are still determined to go down the paths of self-destruction. And let's be clear, if this were to happen, it would not be a matter of God deserting us, but of us deserting God and having to live or die with the consequences. So I find myself coming to a similar conclusion to Richard, albeit by a different route. Things may look bleak, but they are not hopeless. And for those of us who are Christians, our hope lies in God, not an interventionist God who will step in at the very last minute and miraculously undo all the harm we have caused to our planet, but a God whose wisdom can still, even at this dangerously late stage, illuminate the right path that we should be taking forwards. But I'm afraid I must still wag a prophetic finger, for if humanity collectively chooses to reject that wisdom, then there's nothing that God can or will do about it. And life on Earth will end rather sooner than the five billion or so years that are left before the sun finally runs out of hydrogen. Just a short pause while we take in the enormity of what Richard and um, John have shared and discovered with us. Um, and um, then an opportunity for the next... Um, We've got a clock that works. Um, that's new, isn't it? Um, we've got 35 minutes for conversation and debate and questioning and disagreement um, uh, uh, amongst ourselves or with our speakers. Um, if you would just like to say whether your question is particularly for David or John. Um, He's but, Richard, actually. Uh, what did I say? David. David, but I'm often <laughs> called David. I don't know a David. Yeah, no, you do now. <laughs> Hi, I'm David. It's your middle name. <laughs> for, for Richard or John. Um, and, um, uh, or they can chip in with their own ideas. Um, just one tiny little thing. I've just got a message through a convoluted way that apparently the Archbishop's um, Lent book is going to be um, focused on planet change this year. Right, okay. So it might be a book that you'd like so to look people. out for. 
Um, but anyway, who would like to start us off with our questions? Oh, you're going to try and... There's Sue at the back there. Sue, Sue already? We live in an increasingly secular society. One wonders just how much interest there really is in what God has ordained and how much real knowledge there is of all we as Christians acknowledge as being our responsibilities to the world, to all of nature and to all peoples. I didn't quite hear the question, actually. Um, well, I mean, just a very brief comment, if I've understood your question correctly. I, I did try to emphasize that um, there is a religious way of looking at this for people who are within a religious view of life. But I tried to make it very clear that it is not exclusively a religious way of looking at caring and the duty of care that we have. And... Um, I do see, and I see this as a, as a sign of hope, um, that people from very different um, social, ethnic, religious um, traditions, you know, are coming together and are saying much the same sort of things. And I think this is a very positive thing. I was asked to talk particularly in a Christian context about how I saw the Christian God relating to this, and I tried to do it. And that viewpoint might be helpful for people who think that it's part of their religious vocation to have a care for our planet, um, but that's not exclusive. Other people from other traditions and non-religious traditions have the same sense of care and obligation. So if, as a religious person, you found anything helpful in what I said, that's good. Um, but it's, religion has no monopoly over this at all. It, it, it does give commandments, precincts, guidelines for those of us who are in those kinds of communities. But increasingly, I see the same kinds of precepts and guidelines in other religious communities and in non-religious communities. And I think that is, is a very, very hopeful sign. Martin, over there. No, no, we're okay. No, no, uh, no I'm very happy standing. It's easier to see people. No, 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 not at all. But uh, hold the microphone, yeah. Yeah. Um, is engendering uh, a responsibility I don't to think the mic duty is of care? Oh, sorry. Yeah, can you hold it a bit closer? Ah, hello. Um, it, it seemed to me as we were listening to you that the underlying precept is trying to engender a, a duty or a consciousness of a duty of care. That's, that's the nub of it. And that is present, as you suggested, in various faiths 
of things. But living in a very secular society, as mentioned at the back, and living in a very individualistic society in which a duty of care to me, to myself, overrides a sense of a duty of care for myself quite often or for the other and less so for the planet. How can we then engender a, an increased awareness and change of behavior leading to a, a greater duty of care? Your turn. Well, my thoughts wandered away as you were t uh, asking the question. And I don't mean that in a, a pejorative sense at all regarding your question. Um, take that uh, four-minute film we saw. I don't know whether Greta Thunberg is a Christian or a believer or not. And George, her friend, George Memdio, uh, I don't know whether he, he is a Christian or not. What I certainly know is that this extraordinary young woman has uh, spoken and acted in a way that has caught the imagination of literally millions of young people around the world. And I find that uh, extraordinary and heartening. Now, they are not all from uh, religious backgrounds. And, and I do think that, uh, I mean, now talking religious terms, if in any sense the divine image is in all of us, and I know that's a religious phrase, we have all got within us this sense of care. It may be overladen by a great deal of selfishness at times, but I think it's, it's basic to our humanity that we do care. Parents care about their children, whether uh, the family is religious or not. People care about one another in all sorts of ways. I know we don't read it in the papers, but it's there going on all the time. Uh, and I think if we can um, encourage and somehow uh, light the flame of care about our planet, um, then the politicians will respond because they're always just behind where we want them to be, but they're not that far behind or nobody would vote for any of them. So uh, I, I just feel this, this spirit of care is in all of us and it just needs to be released and encouraged. And I think there are extraordinary ways of this happening. Who would have thought that this young girl sitting alone outside the Swedish parliament on the steps there, saying nothing but with a notice, school strike for climate, not even climate, school strike for climate in her own language, would have uh, uh, brought about what she has uh, been the catalyst for doing. I don't think that necessarily answers your question, but it's, but it's what I was thinking about. There's I Richard there and one or two others, and Joe. Yeah, Joe I and Richard. I think there are complications. Rosemary? Yes. Yeah. It's you, Rosemary. I think there are complications about this matter of choices. I mean, how are we going to care for people who, if there weren't coal mines or flybee collapsed, actually would lose their jobs, would lose their livelihoods, not be able, perhaps, in the question of, of coal mining in parts of the world, would not be able to feed their family or have anywhere to live? 
how are we going to care for them? We always seem to be making assumptions that there is one right choice and one wrong choice without actually seeing that choices impact on both sides of the equation. Um, I, you're absolutely right, and I, I don't think I ever said that choices are, are straightforward or simple. Certainly not in such immensely complicated things as um, geo-global and geo-biological and geo-political movements. You know, all, all choices are, I mean, even choices in our everyday lives, you know, they're very rarely 100% one way, 0% the other way, so we'll go to that. that that's not how life is. Um, but the fact that choices are complicated doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of having to grapple with them. I think that's the essential answer I give to your question. And in the grappling, of course different people are going to come up with different kinds of answers, and they're going to make those balances that you talk about in different, in different ways. I mean, I don't have an easy answer to it, but what I'm, what I'm sure is that those choices mm -hmm. will not go away. I mean, I think the gist of, of, of what Richard said in the film is that if we took the view, this is all far too complicated, I'm going to go to bed and pull the duvet over my head, and when I wake up, it'll all go away, um, that is not how it is. And once you get out of bed, then there are these choices, and they are complicated choices. But I think one message that's come through um, from Richard and the message I got from that film is that although ordinary people like us cannot do very much, it is not true to say that we can do nothing. We can, actually. We can do things in our own life, but crucially also... I believe we can have an effect, not on the scale of, of greater, but we can have an effect by participating in the community and nation-state decision-making machinery. And, you know, if we feel that, that our, represent our political representatives are getting the balance wrong, then I think we should say so, and we should have the courage to say so. But I, I, I would never wish it to be thought that I take the view that these choices are simple, and, uh, uh, and if we don't face up to them, they'll go away. We're long, long past that. And if I could do a supplementary to that, see, Rosemary, the example you give is about a change that comes about because of our responding to climate change. But these kinds of changes have been going on our, in our society for other reasons all the time. When supermarkets developed, and most of us go to them, the corner shops suffered, and people suffered because of that. That's just a very almost naive example. Uh, why post-war did we actually vote for a government that brought in a vital social contract between, uh, within the nation so that we had proper social benefits for those who found themselves without a job? Um, very Most of the time, without any fault of their own. So we need to create, and we have in this country, although we could be in danger of abandoning, create a, a social environment where people who lose out, and there will always be people who are losing out for one reason or another, are cared for until they can reorientate their lives, as many heavens do, 
um, uh, and, and find another way of leading a fulfilling life. This isn't just a climate change problem. This is a problem of social change that is going on all the time now. In response to Martin's question, last October, my 16-year-old daughter walked out of school and joined the crowds on the streets of Canterbury. She's never before missed a day of school other than for a grandfather's funeral, and that was um, a few years ago. She, her, by her example, the following week, I went up to London to join Extinction Rebellion. These people care. My kids have asked me, Mum, can we please do something about this? It really is. Their example is influencing us. It's going to be my grandchildren that are going to be around, God willing, at the end of this century. Their children. This stuff's for real. And as a mother and as a priest, we've got to really do something about it. And there's Michael at the back there. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry, I was just uh, trying to help. <laughs> As usual, you know. <laughs> we all try and help, sometimes make a mess of it. <laughs> Richard, I'd like to point out that you said the opposite to what you meant to say when you said that land heated up more slowly than water. And then you corrected yourself by pointing the illustration of how much faster global warming would have happened were it not for the effect of the oceans buffering the rising temperature. Uh, well, I mean, I may have got this wrong, but I think that water uh, heats up more quickly than land. I think that's oh, what's the other way around. Have I got it wrong? Yes. Retains heat longer than land. Well, okay. Uh, well, therefore, if it doesn't heat up more quickly, it retains it uh, longer than land. No, I think that, that the problem with water is that as, as it heats, it expands. And we know that from our school science. And where is expanding water going to go to? Onto land. The other thing about water is that when it heats, it uh, um, can only support less oxygen. And also when it heats, uh, um, the uh, dissolving of carbon dioxide into it is more quick, and so it becomes more acid. So there are interrelated problems with uh, our oceans and climate change, uh, on which I'm not an expert. And I failed O-level general science, so I, um, <laughs> I won't... Uh... Really partly to illustrate what John has said, that many people are getting involved in all this, just as a matter of information to the meeting, um, there's a remarkable organization called Canterbury Climate Action Partnership. And Rosemary, Rosemary who spoke earlier, and I um, were at a meeting of this last night. And I find it one of the most serious 
and business-like groups that I have belonged to in all my time here in Canterbury. It's, there are some remarkable people in it. The city council are behind it, uh, kicking and screaming, you might say, um, but uh, we're sort of holding their feet to the fire, if that's an unfortunate uh, metaphor. Um, but three universities are involved, the churches, the faiths, the Ethnic Minority Council. Um, and it was very interesting last night that the person who switched us, not away, but towards uh, not just the practical things, but towards changing hearts and minds, was our new Quaker representative. <laughs> but this is really for your... Um, Reassur not reassurance, really, just to tell you something's happening in Canterbury and something serious. And this is a small part, a significant part, of something bigger. Uh, Richard Norman here chairs the Sustainable Development Goals Forum, which is about wider things than this, but it's all interconnected. And then finally, and uh, say something unpopular now, because there is a rival meeting to the next meeting of this group <laughs> um, in the Catholic Church. Uh, the Canterbury Society are inviting Canterbury people to hear of some initiatives towards um, climate change, mitigating the, the ill effects. It'll be going on at the same time. I shall be very torn next month. Thank you both for what you've been saying. Hello, I'm very hello. Hello. Hello, I'm very pleased to have come this evening and I feel very encouraged by listening to to you both tonight because you <laughs> I find it very difficult to have these sorts of conversations and debates about climate. Um, I am scared about what's what the future holds and sometimes I'm despairing because uh, people, including myself, I, I, I want to ignore what's happening sometimes and forget about it because it looks bleak, very bleak. And um, you say there's hope, but um, I wonder, you know, without, I mean, as individuals, we can do a bit and we can join with others who feel like-minded you know, and I, I, I'm very gratified that I do belong to groups that care and want to, ch want to change uh, things and do their bit as individuals. But the whole system we are all part of is very toxic and, um, and we're accelerating towards the abyss. That's how it feels. And, um, you know, I sometimes think if Jesus is, would hear, you know, I think um, I've been told that he was into um, nonviolent direct action. I'm, I'm sure he would be a member of 
Uh, he would be protesting. I, I like to think that. Um, but I wonder what more I can do. Um, uh, but I am very pleased to be here tonight. And I wonder what we can do to sort of mitigate against you know, the, the, the sort of fossil fuel, to disinvest and do all the things that we need to do. And do people feel differently? I'd like to know if anyone, you know, I think it'd be good to see if anyone has changed their views in the light of your, your lecture. Thank you. Thank you, John. Can I come back to the theology for a moment? <clears throat> I don't disagree with you for a moment that God will not intervene. But every Sunday, I go to church and I say the confession and I hear the absolution, which sounds remarkably like God saving us from the consequences of our actions. Could you square the circle? No, and I can't. Of course, <laughs> of course I can't, and I try to make it very clear that we have different understandings of who or what God is and how, if at all, he, but I don't like using that word, but we haven't got a better one, um, is at work in the world. Um, and I try to set out what my position is, um, having sort of knocked around Christian premises for, <laughs> for almost 80 years, um, and the position that I'm at is right for me, the position that you're at is right for you. Um, but I do want just to make it quite clear what my position is. I, I do not believe that, that, that God is an interventionist God who is going to come in at the last moment and suddenly make it all good. That is not how it is. And if we're not prepared to do it for ourselves, and this is why I set out very carefully my argument about God's respecting our free will choices. If we're not prepared to do it for ourselves, he is not, she is not going to do it for us. That's my position. You're in a different position. That's, no. oh, I'm sorry, I thought, no. I'm sorry, I thought you're. Oh, okay. Only two? If he's a non-interventionist God, what does forgiveness mean? He intervenes to forgive us, apparently, but he won't intervene to stop climate change. Where, um, where's the line? Yes, what, um, I think we're both all on the, on the same track in a way. Absolution and forgiveness and things changes you and changes me, but doesn't change God. I heard something quite recently looking at Shadowlands by mistake, and C.S. Lewis was saying, I'm compelled, I was going to ask about prayer, so this might lead into it. You know, where does prayer? And he says, I, I just have to pray, and I always pray. And then he said, doesn't change God, it changes me. So, I, I believe that I should 
part of my prayer is to ask for God's blessing, God's uh, guidance, God's precepts, not because they're going to change him or her, but they will change me. And part of what we're trying to do is how can we change ourselves? And in changing ourselves, then our attitudes change others. I think that um, one... I think that one uh, problem that Christians really do face is over this whole uh, understanding or bewilderment about uh, an interventionist God. Because if you look through the prayer books, if you look at the 1662 prayer book, and indeed uh, even common worship, we are very often praying, asking for God's intervention in our churches. And I, uh, I find this difficult and bewildering. Um, then, of course, uh, we do have a God who, if we are Christian, believed, intervened in a most extraordinary way in choosing to become a man among us. Now, you may not call that an intervention. It's, it's called an incarnation. But it seems to me to be a, a very interventioning kind of action that he did then. Um, and uh, there will, nobody's come up with the question, well, you know, Christians have a God who saves us. Isn't he going to save us from this? Uh, and there's this word save that is just bandied about. And a lot of us are bewildered about what it really means. We have a God who has sufficiently intervened in this world to show us his way. I believe that he constantly sustains, guides, encourages, and inspires us with his Holy Spirit. I don't call that intervention. Intervention for me is much more like sort of pulling certain levers. I don't think that God is ever absent from us. I don't believe that God is ever inactive in our lives but he is inactive in such a way that still allows us the freedom to choose. Now, you know, how you square that circle, I don't know, but I think it's still there. He inspires us, guides us, calls us, forgives us, and yet doesn't intervene in a way that stops us doing, at times, very wicked things indeed, both personally and corporately. That is how I see him acting in the world, and it's still, to me, a total mystery. But I go along with what John says. We can't expect a God to come and bail us out. Many uh, people of the Jewish faith gave up being believers in Yahweh, in Jehovah, at the end of the Second World War, because they said, well, if God didn't intervene, to save us, his chosen people, from the Holocaust, he isn't really worth waving a flag for. And as you know, a lot of Jews, both in Israel and outside Israel, are very much secular Jews, and some of them became secular because of the Holocaust. Certainly he didn't intervene in a way that stopped the Holocaust, though I think he was utterly present uh, in the life and suffering and death 
of every one of those six, six million Jews, and there are stories that witness to that as well. This is a great mystery, and I don't begin to understand it. I try and believe that I might understand. We're clearly in a very sensitive situation theologically here, and I have to confess I do speak as a committed Christian. Now, actually, Bishop Richard has taken on a lot of some of the things I was going to say. I think personally that where God is concerned is interaction, rather more than the miraculous interventionist concept that perhaps is, a, is more helpful to us. Although I don't think we, we can completely rule out some form of intervention. <clears throat> and as Bishop Richard has said, you may well argue that the coming of Christ was some form of intervention, incarnation. <clears throat> I readily agree that God isn't just going to bail us out from climate change and so on. But you know, if we believe the New Testament, it does seem to me and many, many exegetes, N.T. Wright perhaps particularly amongst others, that we do have held out to us there a great vision that ultimately through the death and resurrection of Christ, Pentecost, the church, missions and so on ever since, um, that God has an ultimate great purpose. Yes, oh yes, yes. It's not just going to fizzle out into a black hole no, no. because that's not his will. No. And ultimately there will be a great future and although what we do is very important, ultimately it's not going to actually um, affect the final ultimate issue. Now, I just wonder how that fits into our thinking, or doesn't it? it uh, well, it does fit into my thinking for what it's worth, because I do believe that God has an ultimate purpose. I do not know quite what it is, other than it's a purpose of love. And I don't think he will be defeated, because I think this is what the resurrection proclaims, that he won't be ultimately de defeated. But along the way, um, he is constantly adjusting to the mess we make of things. And he takes into account the mess we make of things. So, you know, in, I want to face up to the possibility of us making an awful mess, because without that facing up, I won't get off my backside and do something important about it. The only comment I would make is that I think you should read N.T. Wright with a very open mind indeed. I Just one small comment. Uh, one of the aviation companies, uh, Flybe, has just been granted some uh, tax relief by the government to keep up intercommunication. At this time of year, we are bombarded about holidays and wonderful places to go. And I do find it probably our demographic. A lot of people are quite addicted, quite addicted, and I use the word unreservedly, to foreign travel. And yet if you say to them something, they say something like, oh, we, we go to Italy four times a year. We love the food and the culture and the music. You sort of say to them, mm, that's two of you doing eight flights just for a bit of fun. And people don't like you making comments like that. It's, no. you know, we do our own thing because we, don't, because we want to, we want to use yeah. our time that yeah. way and our spare money that way. 
but aviation is a big contribution. It is. A big one. Yes. But a prophet is constantly making uh, remarks at the right time that are very, very unwelcome. Keep at it. <laughs> they are I unwelcome, I assure you, Bishop. I do think, a very brief comment on your question, I think we need to be honest and recognise that that is hypocritical within all of us. And we, it's up to us to decide how we're going to deal with that. But let's, let's not absolve ourselves or, 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 or read our own hypocrisy away because it is there. Yes. Thank you both very much and thank you for the very lively audience. I'd like to ask Brother Austin to come and give the vote of thanks on behalf of us all. Today at our service in Greyfriars, Archdeacon Joe Kelly Moore took our service and talking to her afterwards, she said that um, friends in Auckland had phoned her that in the afternoon they'd had to switch the lights on because the smoke from Australia had forced them to do so. Australia is 1,500 miles away. It brought home to me today and also this evening this is worldwide, it can't be ignored, we can't sit back on it. And I think tonight we've seen two minds that we might think, or originally thought, working out outside their field of um, safety, working at it, and forcing us to work at it. And I think if we've done anything tonight, we should say thanks for them to force us to think about it. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. It, um, it went well together, I thought.